verse 4. Once again, Hebrews 13, 4. Reading just one verse this morning. Some people have looked at the title of the message and said, it's going to be a short sermon. Some people have looked at the title of the message and said, it's going to be a long sermon. Some have asked if they're going to learn anything. Guess we'll find out. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your word is hard to grasp. And sometimes it's extremely easy And Father, I pray this morning that we would grasp this text. Even though it's one verse, I pray that we would wrestle with it this morning and that your truth would be spoken to us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a timely passage of Scripture. It is extremely relevant. It was relevant when it was written. It is relevant to us today. We must admit that honor and the sanctity of marriage is under constant attack in today's society. That's one of the reasons I'm devoting an entire message to a single verse. It's not really that difficult to understand. Culture no longer has a Christian view of marriage, and they for sure no longer have a Christian view of sexual morality. Let me give you some examples of how the sanctity of marriage is under attack uh, in our culture or in our world today. We've made divorce simple and easy. We've developed no-fault laws. Adultery is considered a normal course of behavior and faithfulness to one spouse for a lifetime is considered unrealistic. Among political as well as religious leaders, many say the standards against sexual immorality in the Bible has been antiquated. These ideas have crept into the church as well and it is evident by the high number of divorces among Christians and the sexual reports among pastors, elders, and Christian leaders who are failing and giving in to sexual sin on a consistent and constant basis. Additionally, many Christian leaders are propagating that homosexuality is not a sin and just as it is an alternate lifestyle. The decline of morality and Christian standards where culture began to embrace the free sex and easy divorce movement began in the 1960s and has continued in a downward spiral ever since. Culture began to have an openness to homosexuality and now it is at the point where it is considered a way of life that should be accepted as normal. Friends, we can't think that the church is somehow insulated from all of this. 
Francis Schaeffer observes people drift along from generation to generation and the morally unthinkable becomes thinkable as the years move on. This is where we are. Evangelicals divorce just as much as the culture at large. Evangelicals struggle significantly with sexual purity. Nearly 20% of the calls that come into focus on the family's pastoral care line deal with issues such as pornography and compulsive sexual behavior. That's their pastoral care line. Additionally, in a recent survey on pastors.com, 54% of pastors said they viewed porn in the last year, and 30% of pastors said they viewed pornography in the last 30 days. 63% admit struggling with sexual addiction or compulsion. 75% of them do not make themselves accountable to anyone. And clear back in 1988, 23% of pastors admitted to having done something with someone other than their spouse that was sexually inappropriate. I can imagine that the numbers are only worse today. This verse this morning is extremely important. Godly marriages are the foundation for our churches and our society. There's also a connection to the previous verse, and that is this, that love for the saints must start in the home between Christian couples. To practice biblical love, husbands and wives must be on guard against sexual infidelity. Don't fall into the trap of thinking times are different and sexual immorality is accepted now. And it's more acceptable now than when the Bible was written. Listen, sexual infidelity has been around a very long time. Men in biblical times often had mistresses or they would go and see the temple prostitutes. So this verse in Hebrews was just as much countercultural then as it is today. And just like they did, we have an opportunity through moral purity and godly marriages to shine a light into the culture around us. This verse makes it clear that God has ordained marriage and sex within marriage. And he will judge those who practice sex outside of marriage. As Christians, we are to display a contrast to the culture that is around us when it comes to marriage and our standards of morality. So first, let's see this. Marriage and sex in marriage are to be held in honor. Marriage and sex in marriage are to be held in honor. That word honor means esteemed or precious or valuable. Paul used the exact same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's speaking of precious stones. Peter uses the word describing the blood of Jesus as the precious blood of Jesus in 1 Peter 1. And speaking of God's precious and magnificent promises in 2 Peter 1. We are to hold in honor our marriages. But also it says the marriage bed which is, if you don't know, speaking of sex in marriage, we're to hold that in honor. I want to make it clear that what I'm about to say in this sermon has nothing to do with politics. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. There's no political agenda here. 
Some people try to cast these things that we're going to talk about as Democrat or Republican. But marriage is pre-political. There is no government that invented marriage. Marriage didn't, government didn't come up with the idea. Marriage existed long before there was a government. I say that because we live in a time that if you say that marriage is how God defines it in the Bible, then you're either a bigot or you're hateful or you're narrow-minded or you're unloving. And you might even get accused of being some sort of homophobe if you say, well, this is how the Bible defines marriage and this is what I believe it is. So why should we honor marriage? Why should the Christian honor marriage first of all because God ordained it God invented marriage in the garden God instituted marriage before sin had even entered the world he said it was not good for man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 and so he created Eve for Adam since marriage comes from God and begins with the first man and the first woman it should be held in honor furthermore jesus said that god invented marriage in the gospel of mark <clears throat> jesus makes it clear that god invented marriage when he points all the way back to genesis chapter 2 in the last verse of the chapter where moses talks about a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife listen jesus said god invented marriage and for that reason, because God invented it, it is pre-political. No government has the right or the authority to try to redefine it. Marriage is to be the permanent union of one man and one woman. That is what it is. That is what it has always been. And what it will always be. It cannot be redefined. And to make that claim is not being hateful to say this is what it is. It, that's not being hateful towards people with same-sex attraction. But it is to be truthful with what the scripture proclaims. Let's further note a few things when it comes to God ordaining marriage. Marriage is honored by the Trinity. Marriage is honored by the Trinity. God the Father instituted marriage in the garden. God the Son honored marriage as well but note he also performed the first miracle at the wedding in Cana and he confronted the divorce practices that the Jewish society had in their time and he reaffirmed God's original intent in marriage God the Holy Spirit honored marriage when he through the inspiration of the Apostle Paul had him write what marriage is and that it's an earthly picture of Christ and his church. Marriage is honored by the Trinity. Not only is marriage honored by the Trinity, but God ordains marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman for life. That's vital. Because no matter how hard people try to redefine it, it can't be redefined. God created one woman for Adam. He didn't create more than one. He created one. Not many. And he did not create a man for Adam. 
That is God's definition. One man, one woman for life. This is not a made-up definition. That's how God defines it. Yes, God did tolerate polygamy in the Old Testament. I didn't say he blessed it. I said he tolerated it. You will not find one example of any harmonious polygamous marriage in the Bible. Polygamy always posed problems. Yes, God tolerated divorce under certain conditions. Notice again, I said he tolerated it. Divorce always is a reflection of the hardness of the human heart in at least one of the people. And God very plainly makes it clear that he hates divorce in Malachi 2.16. Now, what about homosexual marriage? Well, biblically, there is no such thing. In spite of all the attempts of people to justify it, there is no scriptural backing. To say same-sex marriage is to say a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. It does not exist because God has not allowed us to define it. We don't get to define marriage. Homosexuality is uniformly condemned in the Bible as sin. There's absolutely no way around it. Leviticus 18.22, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, all condemn homosexuality. Now let me be abundantly clear, just because God has defined it this way does not give us cause to be mean or a jerk to someone that is struggling with same-sex attraction. It makes it extremely difficult to stand on truth when all someone has ever known is same-sex attraction. And it sounds like you're telling them, well, you can never have love. You can, you can never know love. And that's exactly what it sounds like to them. And listen, we, we will have to make a choice as followers of Christ. Will we stand with the world or will we stand with the word of God? Do I go with the experience of, of, of that which, which is uh, the experience of culture? Or do I go with what God says? You can't honor marriage and yet try to redefine it. Marriage is ordained by God as a lifelong covenant relationship. The sexual union of the marriage is to be restricted within the bounds of that covenant relationship. To engage in sex outside of that covenant relationship, according to scripture, is a sin. Now, let me be clear. There are many ways in which we can dishonor marriage. And I want to explore some of those ways this morning. So we're going to look at ways which we can dishonor marriage. This is not some sort of exhaustive list, but these are ways that we can dishonor marriage. One, by saying celibacy is more spiritual. By saying celibacy is more spiritual. Being celibate does not make someone more spiritual. Paul made it clear that celibacy was a special gift from God which would enable a person to remain single and control their sexual desire so they had more time to be devoted to the Lord. That's not everybody. It's a great thing. But he also made it clear that not everyone has this gift and he even condemns those who forbid marriage. 
Now, the early church, they had, for whatever reason, developed this view that if you were celibate, that meant you were more spiritual. If, if you could remain celibate, then you were like super spiritual. In fact, Origen, who was an early church father, had himself castrated so that he would be free of sexual temptation. Augustine had a concubine and had a son with her and thought he had to give her up and devote himself to a total celibacy to follow Christ, and so he didn't marry her. He instead viewed sex in marriage as a necessary evil, used only to procreate, but not as God's gift to be enjoyed. That's a terrible view of sex. Roman Catholics don't help matters any when they require priests to be celibate. Just muddies the water and furthers the view that celibacy is more spiritual. It's not the case. And if we say that, then we dishonor marriage. Second way we dishonor marriage, by validating homosexual marriage. I already spent a decent amount of time here, so, so I'm not going to spend much more on this idea of homosexual marriage, but we cannot validate it. That's dishonoring to marriage. To say it's okay, or to say ah, it's no big deal, that's dishonoring marriage. Christians are not called to mistreat or hate someone that proclaims to be a homosexual, but let me also be, be clear. Proclaiming God's holy standards is not hating homosexuals. As followers of Christ, we believe that all sin of any kind damages those people who engage in it. That's what we believe. If I was a blind man, or I saw a blind man, ready to walk off the edge of a cliff, what's the loving thing to do? Yell stop, right? Not, the loving thing is not to be like, oh, there's, there's a cliff there, a hundred foot cliff, and I'm just going to watch him walk right off and fall to his death. That's not loving. That's, that's unloving. And so I say, stop. You're going to go off the edge of the cliff to warn someone about the dangers of all sexual sin is not unloving. It is loving. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We are not honoring to marriage, nor are we practicing biblical love if we refuse to proclaim God's standards of sexual purity. Third way we dishonor marriage. By following the culture's pattern of divorce. We can't allow the culture to dictate, what, dictate to us what marriage is, nor to dictate divorce. I understand that there are many Christians who have been divorced. And many of them would do things differently if they could redo them. My goal is not to add to your grief, nor add to your pain. But there is a biblical standard for marriage. And the culture can't dictate that to us. As Christians, we have to reverse the trend that the culture has set. People should look at our marriages and be in awe that we've stayed together so long. 
that we've worked through so many difficulties. In a culture that says, well, you just divorce for whatever reason, because you know things are hard or whatever it might be. That's what our culture says. People should peer inside the church and say, wow, they've stayed together. They've walked through difficulties. It's a sign of, a, of the covenant that we've entered into before God, and they should see that clearly in our lives. Fourthly, we dishonor marriage by missionary marrying. You have perhaps heard of missionary dating, which is when you date an unbeliever in hopes that that person would become a believer. Let's take it further. When you marry an unbeliever, you're dishonoring marriage. In fact, I suspect if we did a poll, many Christians would not even consider it a sin to marry an unbeliever. Most, most Christians would say, ah, it's okay. You can marry an unbeliever. Yet God calls it an abomination. Paul makes it clear that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which means bound together with unbelievers. That we are only free to marry in the Lord. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. So how are you going to marry an unbeliever? The church is representative of the believer and Christ coming for his church. We're not supposed to be marrying unbelievers. To be married to an unbeliever destroys the picture of Christ and his church. It doesn't matter whether you feel at peace about it or not. Some people say, well, I just feel at peace about this marriage. Feeling at peace about something is not the requirement. You don't think Satan can give you peace about something? You don't think Satan can disguise things? It says he comes as an angel of light. You don't think that he can disguise and give you peace about something? Or that your own selfishness can give you peace about something? We say we have peace about all kinds of things that are sinful. When we're disobedient to God, that peace that you feel is not from him. He never gives peace when we sin and we will suffer the consequences of our sin if we enter into a marriage with an unbeliever. Now, some would say, well, what do I do? I, I became a believer after marriage and my spouse is not uh, a believer or I did marry an unbeliever. What do I do now? Well, Paul instructs you to remain in that marriage if possible. First Corinthians chapter seven. You can go back and listen to that message if you want. It's on our website. Perhaps God in his grace will convert your spouse. But just because God converts an unbelieving spouse, that is never justification for entering a mixed marriage in the first place with an unbeliever. That would be presumptuous upon God's grace, which goes against what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. Fifth way we dishonor marriage. By having sexual relations outside of marriage. This is the overall focus and theme of our text this morning. It's interesting because this whole verse is connected. The first half with the second half. They're, they're connected with one another. So when it says sexually immoral in some Bibles, that is one word, fornicators. The meaning really is focus on single people having sex that they dishonor marriage and then it says adulterers which is married people having sex with someone other than their spouse 
They defile the marriage bed. The idea then is that any sexual relations outside of marriage, whether before you are married or you are married and it is with someone other than your spouse, it's dishonoring your marriage. So we have seen that we are to honor marriage because God ordained it from the beginning. And that we dishonor marriage by saying, well, if you're celibate, you're more spiritual. Or by validating homosexual marriage. Or by allowing the culture to dictate to us a pattern of divorce. Or by missionary marrying. Or by having sexual relations outside of the marriage covenant. Now let's see this. The ways that we honor marriage. Ways we honor marriage. Now we could just turn it around. And just say, well, we could state everything positively and say, well, we honor marriage uh, by doing these things in a positive light. By maintaining that marriage is just as spiritual as celibacy. By holding firmly that heterosexual marriage is God's only option. By remaining committed to our spouse even when things are hard. By only marrying a believer and by abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality. And that would be great and that indeed would honor marriage. But I want to focus real strong on two things. We honor marriage first by guarding ourselves against sexual sin. We honor marriage by guarding ourselves against sexual sin. Sexual sin is a problem. It's not just a problem of the world. Sexual sin is a problem inside the church. In September of 2003, 34% of the female readers of today's Christian Woman's online newsletter admitted to intentionally accessing internet porn. 34% of women, Christian women. A poll taken by Triple X Church and reported by CNN in April of 2007 revealed that 70% of Christians struggle with porn in their daily lives. According to a 2010 article published by Focus on the Family, more than 45% of Christians admit that pornography is a major problem in their home. A recent study co-published by the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. and the Marriage and Religion Institute calls pornography a quiet family killer and states that 56% of divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in porn. In fact, internet pornography has now surpassed uh, all financial means as being the fastest growing cause of divorce or has surpassed financial problems as being the fastest growing cause of divorce in America. Sex is the number one thing that people search for on the internet. There are over 420 million pornographic internet pages. In 2006, worldwide porn revenues were 97.06 billion with a B dollars. Sexual sin is a problem. This means your sexual sin is where Satan hits believers. It's not enough for us to sit in our pew 
and say, well, yeah, I agree with God's standard for sexual purity. I agree with that. I agree with you, Pastor. Amen. That's a good sermon. I agree with everything you said. We have to have a strategy to guard ourselves from falling. How do we do it? What kind of strategy should we have to guard ourselves against sexual sin? First, you need to have and maintain a close and daily walk with Christ. And if you are married, a close relationship with your spouse. If we drift from the Lord and we do not spend time with him in his word and in prayer, you will become vulnerable to temptation. There is no doubt about it. The less time we spend with the Lord, the more we are opening ourselves up to vulnerability. If you grow distant from your spouse, you are fighting all the time. You're not praying together. You're not talking with one another. They don't have access, access to certain private areas of your life. If you're distant from your spouse, you will be more open to temptation. A high percent of pastors that failed morally said the main factor was physical and emotional attraction. And 41% said marital dissatisfaction. Church, every single sin that you commit, every single sin that I commit, begins in the mind. Every one of them. Right? It starts out as a thought. That thought can be as simple as this. That person's extremely attractive. Soon it moves into, I wonder what they would look like without clothes on. And for men, I don't know what goes on in a lady's mind because I'm not a lady. Just in case you're wondering. But for men, we're often addressing a woman that you're not married to. And you're doing it in your mind. You see how the thought started? Well, that person's extremely attractive. They look nice. Maybe you look away because your wife sees you, but then you look back later. And next thing you know, you're undressing them. You have to guard yourself against sexual sin. The moment it enters your mind, you have to judge that thought. It's with any sin. You judge that thought and you turn from it. Now, just in case you think that that is absolutely Ridiculous! Listen to what Jesus said. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye calls you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus isn't advocating that we literally maim ourselves, but he is letting us know how serious mental lust can be. And if you refuse to cut it off, Jesus, not Pastor Josh, Jesus says you're going to hell. That's what Jesus said. Listen, that means that there are things on TV that you do not watch. There are movies that you do not go to. There are videos that you refuse to view. That means that you may have to find a way to block porn on your internet 
or on your phone or whatever it might be. That means you need to find a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ if you are a woman and say, hey, I'm struggling with this in my life. And that they hold you accountable, not just for the porn, but for your daily walk with Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what else we need to do. We need to memorize scripture. It is clear that we are to hide God's word in our heart so that we will not sin against him. Scripture transforms the mind. Listen to Psalm 119, 9, 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let me tell you one more thing we need to do. We have to be doing. We have to protect our marriage. I don't know if you go to the mall very often or two-story mall. I used to go a lot, but I don't really go to the mall a whole lot anymore. But if you go to a two-story mall and you're walking around the mall... They have a railing all along there. Why? Well, so you don't just walk off the edge of the two-story mall. Because you're going to get hurt. You fall from the second floor to the first floor, it's going to be an injury. It's there to protect you. Why is it that we do so little to protect our marriage? We don't set up barriers. Can I just be real? Your marriage needs barriers. You need protection. You don't enter close friendships with members of the opposite sex. That relationship may be innocent enough. And you may say things well like, they're, they're just like a brother to me. Or they're like a sister to me. I can, I can talk to them, but, I, but it can go downhill real quick. You need barriers. If you find yourself as a married person attracted to someone else, you need to immediately cut it off. And con cut off all contact and avoid the situation that could lead you into temptation. Don't see how close that you can get to the edge because you're just going to fall off. Don't go there. So we honor our marriage by guarding ourselves against sexual sin. Let me add one more. Number two, we honor our marriage by enjoying your marriage to the fullest. By enjoying your marriage to the fullest. I say this because there are times that we think that we can't enjoy certain aspects of our marriage. Or there are times that we're not enjoying certain aspects of our marriage. So I say enjoy it to the fullest, in particular, the physical aspect of your relationship. Look, when the verse refers to the marriage bed, it is a reference to sex and marriage. It's not a dirty word. Some people would say, well... I just grew up where we did not talk about those, those things. That's fine. But that's part of the problem. We don't talk about those things. The church has failed to talk about those things. And if it's a bad word, then, then people are afraid to talk about those things. 
But scripture's clear. D.H. Fields writes this. The history of the church betrays a far less positive attitude to sexuality than the Bible's. Then he says this, with very few exceptions, patriotic and medieval writers condemned the sensual pleasure of intercourse as sinful. Their attitude to marriage, too, was just as ambivalent. That's a problem. The Bible is clear that sexual pleasure in marriage for both men and women is a good thing. Solomon instructs his son to let the breasts of his wife satisfy him at all times and to be exhilarated with her love. The Song of Solomon is full of the joys of sex in marriage for both partners. And Paul tells both husbands and wives that they do not have authority over their own bodies, but their spouse has authority over them. Therefore, they have a responsibility. This is Paul's writing. They have a responsibility to meet the sexual needs of their mate as a preventative to immorality in their marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, I preached to it. You can go back and listen to the sermon. Clear back in the book of Genesis, Sarah refers to sexual relations with her husband as having pleasure with him. Enjoy your marriage. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. And yes, even sexual pleasure in marriage. Now listen, I'm going to give you a secret. Sex in marriage is directly related to the interpersonal relationship. That's how God's designed it. There's mutual caring, sensitivity, and respect in the relationship between a husband and wife. And that is the foundation of enjoying your marriage to the fullest, especially the sexual part of your marriage. We enjoy our marriage to the fullest because scripture clearly teaches us that we are not to deprive one another. And so therefore we don't deprive one another. A healthy sex life is the guardian against immorality and sexual sin. There are people that commit adultery because they don't have a healthy sex life with their spouse. And rather than address it, rather than talk about it, rather than do something about it, they just ignore it. Don't lay in bed and wonder who's going to start it. If you are in the mood, then start it. If your partner is not in the mood, they need to get in the mood. And you can do something to help them get there. And your partner's job is not to deprive you, just like you are not to deprive your partner. The attitude of looking to please one another, to give pleasure to one another, will go a long way in the bedroom of your marriage. It is not about being selfish. It's about your attitude being, how do I satisfy my partner? And about your partner's attitude being, how do I satisfy them? So we have spent the bulk of our time talking about marriage and sex in marriage and being held in honor now quickly we need to get to the warning here that paul gives he says this or that the author of hebrews gives because i don't think paul wrote hebrews go back and listen to the very first sermon but anyway he says this god will judge all who practice sexual immorality god will judge all who practice sexual immorality This means professing and non-Christians alike will be judged for adultery and sexual immorality. 
Those who remain in an adulterous lifestyle or who are sexually immoral will suffer the ultimate judgment and damnation despite the fact that they profess to be a Christian. They've deceived themselves because they're really not a Christian. Now, before you think that this is some isolated passage, like this is the only place that this says this, God's word is terrifyingly clear. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. This is a reference. You can go back and listen to my sermon on this too. This is a reference to both the dominant and passive partner in a homosexual relationship. So neither those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 5-6. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be at the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, Revelation 21.8. We could go through scripture after scripture after scripture this morning with this warning. And while it is true that, that it delivers this, this warning to us, we don't have to fear God's eternal judgment if we know Christ as our Savior. But the scripture is also clear that those who habitually practice sexual immorality may not even be a real Christian. If you are a Christian, then God will discipline you if you engage in sexual sin. Yes, God forgives. But that does not mean that the consequences are removed. The pain you've brought to yourself and to others and to families because of sexual sin has consequences. It could mean contracting a sexual disease, one that is untreatable or even fatal. Now, before you have the thought that, well, we're under grace. And therefore, we don't have anything to worry about. We would do well to remind ourselves that, uh, that the very same book that gives the explanation of God's grace, where we like to quote that we're under grace all the time, issues a warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God will judge all those who practice sexual immorality. So guard yourself against it. We don't want to end there because that's some bad news. So let's give some good news. Thirdly, God forgives those who repent and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. God forgives those who repent and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people will say, what if I've committed sexual sin? 
Is there any hope for me? What if I've messed up? What if I've messed up repeatedly more than one time? Is there any hope for me? And the answer is yes. There's hope for you. Earlier I read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul's warning against God's judgment on sexual immorality. That warning was given because the Corinthian church had struggled greatly with sexual sin. Not unlike many today. But listen to how Paul follows his warning. He says this, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you catch that? He says this used to be you. This sexual sin, this used to be you. For those who are struggling with sexual sin or who have struggled with it, there's hope. This past week, I've shared a video on social media of a young woman who was a lesbian and she came to know Christ as her savior. The title of the video was, It is not gay to straight, it is lost to saved. There is no sexual sin, whether it be homosexuality, adultery, nor any kind of sexual perversion that is somehow beyond God's forgiveness. None. His word tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is mercy found at the cross. The apostle Paul persecuted and killed Christians. He calls himself the chief of sinners, and yet he found mercy at the cross of Christ. You can experience God's forgiveness and his gift of eternal life if you turn from your sin and you trust Jesus Christ to save you. In conclusion, I want to say this. Sex is not a dirty word. It is a shame that the church for far too long has treated it as such, has failed to talk about it. Biblically speaking, sex has never been a dirty word, ever, in the context that God ordained it for, which is a lifelong covenant marriage between a man and a woman. It is a great thing. That is the right place for sex. The wrong place for sex is outside of a, of a covenant marriage where it encourages the judgment of God. As followers of Christ, we believe that God's word is true. And as such, if we reflect on the culture, we will recognize that the culture that is around us is in moral decay and darkness. However, this is what I know. When the darkness is greatest, the light shines brightest. And we can look at our culture, and it's dark. But that's when our light shines brightest. We have to maintain God's standard of moral purity. Because he will use us to shine 
in this dark and dreary world with the good news of God's forgiveness for those who have committed sexual sin and the news that sex is clean and beautiful in a God-ordained marriage. I don't know how God may have spoken to you through this message this morning. Maybe it's something dealing with your marriage. Maybe you would look and say, I'm dishonoring my marriage. Perhaps there's something you need to be doing to honor your marriage. Maybe you need to repent of some sexual sin in your life. As always, this altar will be open. You can come and pray. You can grab my hand and say, Pastor, I need to pray with you. You can pray where you're at. You can talk to me later. I just want to challenge you that if God has dealt with you in any way, if he's dealt with you concerning your marriage or how you need to honor or how you're dishonoring it, or perhaps sexual sin revealed in your life that you've never repented of, you've never turned from, and you need to do that today, then I would challenge you to do that. Challenge you not to just think it's going to go away. God's dealing with you for a reason this morning. Let's close in prayer.